People of the world, good day and welcome to the Brothers Talk with your hosts, Rod, Scott, and Norm, where our purpose is a simple one. We are three Black African-American men who are giving voice to that most feared, most misunderstood, and most rarely heard from segment of the population. So give us a listen and see what makes us unique from the other voices out there because we've got no strings attached and no filters to keep us from saying exactly what we think and what we believe a lot of you are interested in hearing, even if you may not always agree. So wherever you are, buckle up for a weekly experience that's sure to be unlike any other, but hopefully not for long. Our ground rules, we're not starting this process with our own introductions because we feel that the message is the thing and we want to get right into it. As we go along, you'll learn about as much about us as you care to know. But right off the bat, we want you to know that each episode is designed to be about 30 minutes of discussion, because as my grandfather always said, it don't take all day to do nothing. And because frankly, we don't believe in over-talking a subject. We'd rather you want more, not less from us and our guests. And just before we launch out, here's how you can reach us with your comments, questions, and suggestions. We're at The Brothers Talk on Twitter, The Brothers Talk on Instagram, the Facebook group of the same name, and if you care to share in more detail, hit us up at the email address, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. Now let's get to it. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, all of you listeners out there for all of the positive re- feedback we received on the initial broadcast last Friday. We are glad to have you back with us again and tell as many people as you can about what we're doing out here. We look forward to more and more of your feedback as well. We are already in the process of negotiating to have the video portion of the Brothers Talk streamed on Millennium TV. So stay tuned for more of those details. But again, thank you so much. Yes, well, Rod, that's great news. We're going to be on television and uh, we're going to actually reach a larger audience and hopefully get a lot more participation. I just want to echo what Norm and Rod just said. I want to thank all our listeners out there for all the positive comments and positive feedback. So jumping right in, um, we last time we left off, we were talking about education, and we also said we're going to talk about internalized racism. Uh, one of the things I saw just a couple of days ago was a commercial for a new version of the board game Monopoly, which most of us grew up with. But this new version is called the Cheaters version. And I think that says a lot about the educational system where the values are, that with all the struggles that teachers have, with all the struggles that students have to understand values and morals. How sad is it that it's being undermined by a capitalist system that is now wanting to teach our kids how to cheat? Well, um, our president did really well with that, I, I, I think. Well, when we talk about education system, I, um, I used to be a teacher. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Um, you know, we teachers and students don't have the advocacy, really, the education system is, when you, when you think about it, it's just a political football. That's what politicians talk about education, what they're going to do to improve the education system to actually make it better. But really, they're not investing the right way in teachers and students. No, you're absolutely right. Not only are they not investing in it, you made a point earlier about when you look at who supports the teachers, it's usually just the teachers' union you can barely get parents out to any kind of PTA or PTO or any of those organizations designed to support kids unless they have kids in the school. And even then you have a lot of parents who are absent from the process. But if you have a meeting that talks about 
increasing property taxes to raise teacher salaries or to provide more supplies for kids, then all of a sudden you get a big following of people who are anti any level of additional financial support for kids. You know, you have to love the memes when they show the lines for Black Friday and then they show back to school night and it's pretty much desolate. When you look at it, it just again starts to illustrate what we consider the real priorities. But when it comes to showing up and actually putting our money where our mouths are, then suddenly there's this copious drop-off. That means that instead of realizing that these kids are going to be handling the future generations as well as our well-being as we reach those ages where they are in charge of the world, that we have undercut their ability to process information. Something that you just said about the lack of support for teachers is really true. When teachers are out there striking, the only way they can get some attention, they have to say, you know what, we're going to go on strike. And when, they, when, they, when they're on the picket line, the only people on the picket lines are teachers. So people are being disingenuous when they talk about kids are our future. But if kids are your future, why aren't you out there standing side by side supporting teachers? Why aren't you out there demanding that kids get better education? One of the things that's just mind-boggling, we know around the world what systems are best for teaching kids how to read, what systems are best in teaching kids how to do math and science, but we're not taking the best from around the world. What we like to do is we like to say that we have the best educational system in the world and people buy into it. But there are other countries that have better teaching methods and techniques in teaching kids how to learn math and science and how to read. And it's so interesting you say that because when they actually do those measurements about the different educational systems, you know, our kids have fallen down into the teens in math as well as as language literacy. And yet there's this perception within the country that we are still at the top. And so it was also interesting to see that when it came to self-importance or self-image, that our kids definitely were at the top bar none. But when it came to the actualization of looking at the math scores and at the language scores, we were in the teens and falling. And so I think that says a lot about what a system that we live in is focused on perpetuating a myth that even when we aren't the best, we have to believe that we're the best. And yet we know that that means that other countries are not only catching up, but passing us and surpassing us. Well, we like to believe that we're the best because we're spending the most money. And we we are spending the most money. We're just not spending the, the most money in the right way. Yeah, you got plenty of money going into school systems, but too little of that money is actually finding its way into the salaries of the teachers, the first line of defense, if you will, the first line of offense, who's actually making the difference. And what really has happened in this country in regards to charter schools and private schools and choice is education has become another point, another avenue to distribute wealth. Betsy? Siphoning dollars for school choice, which is really an avenue for them to line their pockets. And she, being a product of private schools, being over a public school system where she nor any of her family members basically had any interaction, is just the latest kind of travesty that exists that nobody's holding that system accountable. 
because again, it's like anything else. It fails me to understand how you can actually supervise something that you have no experience with. And that you certainly now, as an elderly white woman, have no opportunity to go back and experience. Earlier, you mentioned advocacy for teachers and kids. And and as you guys were talking, I was thinking about when I was a teacher and you have parent-teacher conferences. I would have the same three parents. I taught a total of about 125 kids. On parent-teacher conference night, I would have the same three parents come and want to talk about the progress of their kids. So there's no advocacy for the kids. And I was thinking, I was like, okay, how do we incentivize parents? Because that's really the key. How do we incentivize parents to get involved with their kids? You know, I was um, listening to one of the charter schools in New York and, and really how they did it. And they really didn't even select students because they, the theory is that charter schools, you know, they cherry pick students. And this, the success behind this one school is they don't cherry pick students, they cherry pick parents. Yep. They literally have to sign a contract and it's literally on the parents' shoulders. And that really relates to the success of the student. How can you really even incentivize parents when, when we look across a system that for the past 55 years has been focused on systematized racism that allowed the educational resources to flow out of our communities, meaning that the educational levels continue to decrease. So you got in a lot of our urban communities and a lot of our rural communities, students who barely finished high school. And if they did, they were in the lower echelon. And so they are now having children who are in these school systems. So they really don't even have the wherewithal to understand what it is they're missing out on. I was at a conference, we was having this conversation. I can't remember the woman's name. She started, she was like the president or or something for the Thurgood Marshall Fund. And they had this, they were in the the conference. Most of these people were getting grants and they were complaining about the grant money drying up. And uh, they had all these programs for kids in underprivileged schools and mainly they was focusing on males. And they was complaining about the money drying up. And I said, look, you need to start with the parents. How do you incentivize parents to get involved? You got to get the parents the tools to help their kids. And they were saying, well, where's the money going to come from? And I said, look, you got 12, 15 different organizations in here, and you all are focusing on the same thing. Let's take some of that money and let's develop programs to give parents the tools to work with their kids. And that's part of the problem. Some of the parents, like Rod, you were saying, you know, these some of them barely got out of high school. So they can't help their kids when it comes to fifth and sixth grade math and science. They're not prepared. They don't have the tools to do it. They don't know where to go get help. So my thing was, why don't we take some of this some of this money that you're throwing at all these programs for the last 30 or 40 years, supposedly to help black kids in underperforming schools but they aren't, they aren't working. Let's take some of that money and focus on the parents. How do we incentivize them to get them, them involved? And I think it's important to take a step back and focus on what I meant when I said an incentivized racist system, which happened for the last 55 years, because one of the keys, the most harmful effects of integration was that it took away the opportunity in the South in particular, what you had, and was something that my mother, who was the high school math teacher pointed out, was that when there were uh, black and white high schools, each school had its own contingent of college preparatory students. And once integration happened, where you merge those two schools together, well, of course, the dominant power structure, which was white, 
would end up controlling that school system. And so the white students in the college preparatory classes would get preference over the black students. So a class of 25 white college preparatory students and 20 black college preparatory students would now be condensed. There wasn't room for 45 students, so there were still 25. So what would suddenly happen, though, is now you had 22, 23 white students and two or three black students. So what happened to the other 17, 18 black students is they got pushed into lower performing classes and therefore their opportunities decreased. Yeah, this whole thing is, is, is kind of a segue into the uh, internalized racism from education because there's something that happened in the education system when they started doing away with auto shop, when they started doing away with uh, carpentry, those classes. What used to happen in those classes, so you get the basic, the foundation for becoming an auto mechanic or, or becoming a, a carpenter. Well, at that particular time, I can remember if uh, in my community, if I wanted to go have some work done on my car, uh, you needed some work done on your house, there were multiple black carpenters or, or auto mechanics who could do that. So them getting the, uh, doing away with the auto shop and the carpentry classes, what that did, it basically started that process of Black-owned businesses to dry up. Because what happened? Well, now you can't take auto shop. Now you don't have the basic found. You don't have the, You're not getting the, the foundation. You got to go to a trade school. Well, the Pell Grant or the BEOG or whatever, you couldn't use that to go to a trade school. You got to pay to come out of, you got to come out of your pocket to go to a trade school to get some of those skills. Most black folks didn't have that kind of money to send their kids to a trade school to learn auto mechanic or, or carpentry. So you got the foundation in high school and then you went and worked with your parent, your father, or uncle, a cousin as an apprentice. And that's how the business grew. But once that kind of was cut off, that wasn't an avenue for black kids to get that, the basic fundamentals, the foundation for doing that. What you're saying, though, is also emphasizing the point that desegregation or integration had that sort of negative effect on the economies in the Black communities exactly. as well. Exactly. Because once again, now you didn't get the same opportunities to go get the funding to have, like you said, the Black auto mechanic. So all of a sudden, you had those opportunities pushed over so the Black auto mechanic now had to go work for the white auto dealership or the white auto mechanic. There you so go. you watch that, that source of revenue leave our communities as well. And so it just became magnified by the fact that what the internalized racism piece of it was, was that instead of us getting our resources together and saying that, no, we were not going to accept that we were going to let all these businesses leave our community. We became so enthralled with the idea of being able to go and patronize these white establishments, which in no uncertain terms didn't really want us there, but basically felt forced to by the government. And so we started to turn our back on opportunities to create wealth and create revenue inside our communities. And that chain has been unbroken ever since desegregation happened. And also, you know, I have a cousin who's a mechanic um, down in North Carolina, and it's just really funny, even to this day, how our people rather go to his competition than him and then complain that he charges too much. Right. That's the that's that internalized racism where for some reason everybody else's ice is colder than our ice. Yeah. Know, everybody else's service is better than our for our service. Everything from any other ethnic group is better than our group. 
So we're going to patronize other people. And we're just going to give lip service to patronizing black businesses. For a long time, there used to be this notion of this fictitious document called the Willie Lynch letter, which talked about, you know, how to make a slave. And basically, one of the chief components of it talked about how you managed to pit one group of slaves against another in a, in a way that allowed the master to divide and conquer, if you will. And so that kind of thinking, even though, like I say, the letter itself was fictitious, the rationale behind it still exists. And so even in that, there's a sense of how we've eternalized a lot of these precepts where we've adopted the oppressor mentality to allow us to keep the stereotypes alive. Because even when we talk about black businesses, you will hear a lot of conversation amongst us that has to do with almost the chicken or the egg principle, which is which came from first, the bad black service or the bad black customer. And so, you know, it's that kind of, again, crabs in a barrel mentality that continues to be the tool of the oppressor, but it's being practiced by us. And if there ever was a definition of internalized racism, that would be it. And see, one of the things I would like for our listening audience to do is say, give us some examples. How do we break that cycle? Because what's happening now is you can go to almost any black community in the country. We don't own businesses in our own community. We're still being redlined. But you have people come over here from other countries. And I, I mean, you can't blame them. They go where the opportunities are. But for some reason, they can come to our communities and their businesses can thrive but we open a business and we can't get the support of black folks and that is to me that internalized racism is something that has prevented us from becoming the community that we used to be i mean you have people in my in your neighborhood who might not even speak to you they won't even make eye contact what is that all about you know when i grew up you knew everybody in the community Everybody in your neighborhood at least acknowledge you. You got black folks who won't even acknowledge you. We don't even acknowledge each other. We don't support each other on, you know, unless it's somebody that's very, very close to you, you don't get support from other folks. For some reason, why is it that all the other ethnic groups, they pool resources together, they support each other, they don't break each other down, they don't tear each other down, but we do. But you know, you said it, we don't do those things. We're in open competition with each other. Yeah. And they're not. They're actually working together. together. We are, like what I said earlier, doggy dog. We're we're basically fighting each other. Yeah. How do we get away from that though? How do we how do we break that cycle? How do we come back and start becoming a community where we start respecting each other, where we start supporting each other, where we start, it's okay if I see you in the morning and I acknowledge that you exist and speak to you or compliment you on something that you did uh, and I'm proud of. What do we, how do we get back to that point where we were? We used to be that way. Every, it seems that all the other groups are there and we're not. We're still fighting each other. We, we're still, we still have that crab in the barrel mentality for some reason. We still want to be the only one or the first one. It's a much more complex issue because it would be good if it were as simple as that. But the other side of that means that we've also begun to adopt this notion that there is a stereotype that pervades its way into those who would start businesses because they don't believe that there are blacks out there who will support them their businesses. And so that's the other side of that coin. And so what we have to recognize is that there are stereotypes throughout this process, because that's why I mentioned the fact that, you know, it's the old, which came first, the bad black customer or the bad black service, because we know for a fact, 
that, you know, we are three examples of black men who will go out of our way to support black businesses. And right. we know that in truth, yeah, we are going to ha have some experiences where the service wasn't good, but we know that that's not necessarily anything that is unique to the black experience, because I can guarantee you we've had many more bad experiences at white establishment or other ethnic establishments than we have at black establishments, simply because there aren't as many. And yet we typically do not paint all white establishments with that brush. We don't paint all other ethnic groups with that brush, but there's something intrinsic in the internalized racist nature of what we are allowing ourselves to adopt in that we will do that amongst our own. We will accept that if we got bad black service at a black restaurant, then now we're hesitant to go to another black restaurant. We got bad black service at a black mechanic, we're hesitant to go to the next. And that's the kind of thinking that we have to do our best to rid ourselves up. And certainly here we are doing quote unquote Black History Month, which is a good opportunity, as you said, Scott, to look for solutions and remedies and even to commit to doing things like recognizing that with the buying power that we have, the statistics are still out there that say that if you take the buying power, the consumer power of Black America, we would be the fifth largest nation on earth. And so if we really want to make a dent and make a statement, then what would happen if something like during Black History Month, we decided to consciously focus on patronizing Black businesses just to see the impact that it would have, one, on forcing the majority culture to pay attention to our issues and also what it would mean for the level of income that would come into our neighborhood. And, and you know, that's, that's an outstanding idea. You said something that I think is critical. The reason that black folks are not opening businesses is because they don't think that they're going to get support from the black community. The other is because of safety. So you got an issue here where these other groups can come into our uh, into our neighborhoods, open businesses, they don't get robbed. You open that same kind of business in the neighbor in your neighborhood, it's a good chance that you're not only going to get robbed, but you're probably going to lose your life. So those are things that we have to deal with, and those are the terms that keeping people from opening up black, black businesses in our communities. But something that you said, you just said about using Black History Month to support black businesses, I think that somehow if we can get the churches involved, the ministers, some ministers and churches got to step up and say, hey, patronize your own, patronize your own. We, there, there has to be the whole community involved. It got to be buy-in from most black folks. They're going to follow what their ministers tell them to do. And it should be across the board. I mean, you're right. The black church still does have influence, although it, in today's world, diminishing influence because of the yep. lack of activism, especially with the number of churches that are focused on this prosperity gospel, which is just basically trying to turn the church into a an EST movement of self help as opposed to thinking about how to help others, there's a better source of us starting to recognize that the real need is for all of our African-American and Black leaders and people who are in position, whether it's social media, whether it is the pundits who are televised and the radio and other internet celebrities, to get behind the notion of let's use this short month that they elected to say is Black History Month to emphasize supporting Black businesses. Not only supporting them, but starting 
black businesses, encouraging people, giving them the resources. That's the other thing. We don't share information. You know, most black people want to start their own businesses, but they don't know where to start. There is not enough mentorship out there. People are so afraid of the competition. You may be my competition, so I'm not going to help you. We don't share information like other groups. How do we break that cycle? Well, information is one thing, but actual capital is another. So, I mean, the other part of that is we also need to be supporting black banks because in essence, if we didn't have to go hat in hand to the large cap banks, because we know that there's still a high degree of discrimination and racism in their lending practices. So one of the key obstacles to black business ownership is the lack of available capital to get the business started. That's the number one obstacle. I I did some research on that for a a customer and wondering why other uh, small businesses succeed at a higher rate than um, black businesses. And the number one reason was lack of capital. Yeah, and so if we're, we're recognizing that that is an obstacle, you know, the number of black banks that uh, once again went away with desegregation slash integration is another area. And even today, you know, when black banks try to get started and try to expand their portfolios, they face obstacles that are put in place by no one other than the bank lobbies, which recognize potential impact that more and more monies put into black banks would represent if those black banks were able to expand their reach to fund more black businesses. But those two things together, if we started to insist that we invest more into blank banks and deposit more into black banks, then that would be a good start to allowing some of the answers that you asked for, Scott. And we certainly want to hear more from those of you out there who are listening to the podcast, because we want to encourage you to continue to add your input, the areas where you can follow us and show us your comment. You've got at the Brothers Talk on Twitter. You've got the Brothers Talk on Instagram. You've also got the Facebook group of the same name. And you have, if you want to get into more detail and send it to us, thebrotherstalk at gmail.com. So once again, our commitment to keep these broadcasts to around a half an hour. So we have reached the end of this week's podcast, and we hope that you will be back with us again next week because we'll continue to focus on new and different topics. And we hope that you send us along both your suggestions and your ideas so that we can be more responsive and continue to be relevant to your interest. So that's it for now. We can all do better since today is the only time that we have. We need to commit to doing it now.